1: It is Thursday, July the 23rd. I'm Ed Harrison here in Washington, D.C., and this is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. We're going to be joined shortly by Tyler Neville in our Austin Bureau. But first, we're going to have the news with Nick
2: Correa. Thanks, Ed. On Monday, the state of Kentucky, seeking compensatory and punitive damages, sued hedge funds Blackstone and KKR & Co. Incorporated. They claim that the returns these funds have generated for the Kentucky Employee Retirement System's pension plans or KRS, have had disappointing results while simultaneously generating excessive fees. The plaintiff's allegation is that these firms have, quote, targeted underfunded public pension funds like KRS. To them, KRS was a potential buyer of the exotic high fee and high profit hedge fund vehicles they sold, end quote. They describe the nature of these funds as, quote, extremely high risk, secretive, opaque, high fee, and illiquid vehicles, end quote. The legal complaint also says that, quote, the hedge fund sellers and their top executives have collected hundreds of millions in fees for their entities, a meaningful portion of the profits from which flowed to the top executives personally, end quote. This legal complaint is a revival of one that was brought against Blackstone and KKR a couple years prior by eight retired beneficiaries. According to that original complaint in late 2011, KRS had invested around $1.5 billion with KKR and Blackstone. The lawyers had alleged that, quote, these unsuitable investments did not lower risk, reduce illiquidity, or generate sufficient returns to enable KRS to even approach, let alone exceed the assumed rate of 7.75%, on an ongoing basis, end quote. As a result, the hedge funds had ultimately lost the funds, and quote, damaged KRS and Kentucky taxpayers, end quote. Kentucky's public pension is one of the most underfunded pensions in the U.S. At this point, we have to wait and see where this lawsuit goes, as they investigate these allegations against Blackstone and KKR and their predatory practices. However, it highlights the ongoing predicaments pensions find themselves in globally, chasing yield and attempting to achieve their funds' return goals in a low-rate environment. Let's consider how they have been exacerbated through the coronavirus crisis. With central banks' vast and unprecedented support since the beginning of the crisis, interest rates have been historically low, which hurts pensions, specifically defined benefit plans. Prior to the pandemic, low rates have already forced pension fund managers to seek yield in other, riskier asset classes in order to meet their fund's return rate. This crisis and the central banks' global response now only makes the chokehold on pensions tighter, high level of volatility in stock markets have also placed pension funds between a rock and a hard place. Additionally, withdrawing from retirement accounts has become easier during the pandemic in several different countries, including the U.S. and Australia, and millions have not hesitated to jump at the chance to secure some extra cash for present and urgent expenses. For example, in Australia, close to $16 billion was paid out by Australian superannuation funds between April 20th and June 14th, to about 2.1 million Australians. The systemic issues with pension funds globally have only been brought to the forefront during this pandemic, and it'll continue to have a lasting impact on people's ability to adequately save for retirement and on the pension industry's ability to generate adequate returns. And with that, I'll send it back over to Ed.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's l i b s y n com.
1: Thanks, Nick. And hey, Tyler, I, it was, I almost had to laugh when I was talking about our Austin Bureau. So I'm, I'm in our D.C. Bureau. You're in our Austin Bureau. We have bureaus all over the place, don't we? Oh,
3: yeah. We're the uh, new age media firm. Yes.
1: So I was looking at the uh, the markets here, and it looks like uh, it was a down day. The Dow was down over one percent. S and P was down one percent. And actually, the Nasdaq was down over two percent today. Uh, What's on your mind? Uh, I don't. It's not necessarily related to specifics of the market today, but when you're thinking about the markets in general, what's on your mind today?
3: Today, I just think the market. It was a little bit overbought. I think we had, you know VIX expiry, and you know, as that rolls off, people sell ball. Now people you know, the VIX was up today, the market pulled back a little bit. A lot of the RSIs were saying you know the tech stocks were on fire. Active managers probably took a little off the table. But you know longer term, I'm not really that concerned. The big elephant in the room to me is when you see bonds really selling off and credit spreads widening. And we are not seeing any of
1: that stuff right now. Right. You know, uh, I I definitely want to get to because I know that you have some uh, pointed views on pension funds, uh, which is what Nick was talking about earlier in the broadcast. But uh, you and I, we spoke a little bit about the things that we're going to be talking about. And I thought it was interesting the bits and pieces that were about generational shifts, you know, that is particularly between millennials and baby boomers and how. That's playing out in the real economy and how it's playing out in the financial economy. The way that I would describe it is, you, you, your thesis is almost like secular stagnation is is bullish for for risk assets. Uh, is that overstating what you how you're looking at it?
3: No, I think you know that's my framework. Essentially, is we are in a secular stagnating market. Uh, if you look at the S and P a lot of the companies are these old calcified kind of mega bureaucratic corporations that are probably going to just grow with GDP. If you're inside one of these things, they do everything in their entire like world is essentially playing not to lose instead of playing to win, which makes sense because a lot of them were, you know, baby boomer run, you know, they're just trying to maintain their uh, this lifestyle. Uh, career risk is the number one thing that is like feared in corporate America, so at those giant corporations like there's no incentive to go you know take a swing at a home run so my My essential framework is that 's where the real like growth is going to happen is in the private markets um, right now.
1: So smaller, more nimble companies that are not being represented in the S&P, not even being represented in the Russell 2000, but these are the private uh, upstarts, the companies that are coming
3: forward. Yeah, I think that's the main thing the Fed is trying to keep going with all this, to be honest. like They're printing M2 at 25% year over year. Right. They They don't want this credit crisis to actually hit. Bankruptcies are rising. But the main thing is, I think they need an innovative engine to the economy to keep going. And that happens in the private markets right now. It, it's happening very rarely, maybe in a handful of the, the things where they manage to innovate, and they've caught wind of a secular you know, thing in digital marketing, essentially.
1: Right. You know, um you, the first thing I'm thinking about before we even get deeper into the whole generational aspect of it is something I read from uh it was from Albert Edwards earlier today. I think I was telling you about this and he was looking at it from a different perspective in terms of the secular stagnation. The way that he posited it was he was saying, "Yeah, M2 is exploding, but the reason M2 is exploding is because people think the Fed has their back." And uh, this includes banks. And so banks are pretending and extending. They're pretending these companies are not insolvent and extending loans to zombies. And so the Fed's uh, impact is basically having a zombification of the economy. So rather than actually spur innovation and spur growth, what it's doing is it's entrenching these calcified companies that you're talking about, allowing them to uh, suck up all the bank capital and that means that you know you have lower productivity and interestingly enough higher uh, capacity uh you know you're not using all your capacity and then lower pr- uh prices that is uh disinflation and potentially leading into deflation so that's where the st- secular stagnation comes from in the way that he's talking about it
3: yeah i mean that's precisely it that's probably more eloquent than i i could put it myself but uh yeah th- there's Somewhere along the way, and it must have been like a regulatory thing, uh, possibly, but the market used to provide capital to great ideas. And they were crazy. Like, you know, in the 90s, you were funding companies and IPOs that had no earnings, right? There's a nice balance in there somewhere, I think, where, you know, that could happen. But right now, the market is essentially a giant refinancing mechanism. And the perfect way to articulate that is to just look at the aggregate bonds value of aggregate corporate bonds and high yield. So corporate bonds, according to Barclays, they're $6.7 trillion and high yield is like $1.4 trillion in value. Every time those go up in value, it essentially allows baby boomers to borrow against it and buy more risky things, right? That's, that's essentially what's going on. Uh, What, what I think we're in the stages of is, is a blow off top. And the reason why is like, there's a great quote. I heard it was, you know, communist theory suggests that when interest rates hit zero, it's a sign that the capitalists have run out of places to put their money. Right. And we're kind of at that point, like rates keep going lower. Look at treasury 10, 10 years at 5.8% or 0.58%. And, you know, high yield in, in corporates are raising money at, you know, record low levels. And then look at housing, like the 30 year mortgage is at a 50 year low. So take me for an example, like just bought a house and, you know, I'm in the millennial contingent that's now having kids. And,
1: and I'm house- glad you call yourself a millennial rather than uh, Gen Xer because you're, you're sort of on the borderline there, right?
3: Right, right. But Gen Xers are kind of in it too in, in a lot of senses. Um, there's one chart I wanted to share that just tells the best picture uh, of all this stuff. It, it shows that, that in the 1990s, baby boomers entered their late 30s and had 21% of household wealth. Right mm-hmm. now- In 2020, millennials are in their early 30s and they own just 3% of household wealth, which is just incredible. And that's sort of why I'm bullish. Most people would look at that and say, you know, I'm bearish. I was bearish when the Fed was shrinking their balance sheet and raising rates. I was like the most biggest bear out there. But now I'm like, they're just, this is a policy decision. They're going to print over it. We're going to get inflation eventually and then it'll all kind of bust. But there's negative real rates forcing people out into the craziest parts of the market. And I think that's going to stay until that gap closes. You know, one of the other interesting- oh, thing-
1: for the gap, uh, you know, talk to me about that gap. I mean, uh, from different sides of it, in terms of like your incentives uh, from an investment perspective, if you're the baby boomer side of that gap uh, and how the Fed reacts to you and policymakers, and then if you're on the millennial side of that gap.
3: Yeah, so- as a baby boomer, you're seeing the bond side of your portfolio go up. And you're essentially like, I am caking it. I'm doing so good. You know you know what I should do? My house went up in value. I'm going to take a, a loan out. You know, Mortgage rates are at their lows. Why don't I just buy that other house over there, put 20% down and have some free cash flow, own another asset, pay off my debt. It's a giant refinancing mechanism. They're not going to keep it. You know, in their bank accounts anymore because interest rates are zero. And they're also getting eaten up by inflation, negative real rates, right? So they're gonna do things and we're moving into this world where, you know, it's Henry George market, which is essentially where when you can refinance all your debt and buy all the rentier assets, you can just slowly raise the prices of housing and kind of cut off the, the uh, innovation and growth of the economy. I think that's what's going on in San Francisco right now. But you're seeing people jump ship and come to places like Texas or Denver, like I've mentioned previously. Um, but I think that those hubs are where the innovation is going to come, you know, in the future.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com right that-
1: very, very interesting yeah i mean that's another way of looking at your dynamic right of uh, the secular stagnation uh basically that you know the baby boomers crushing uh the 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 returns out of existence by uh, becoming rentiers and uh and and doing what henry george said you shouldn't do and therefore we need to have like a land value tax was his solution
3: yeah exactly um and and then to move it one step further uh and this might be a little bit out there, but just follow me for a second. We are now all connected to the internet. We probably imbibe a lot of the similar information, same narratives, right? And my guess in the marketplace is you want to bet on the original thinkers, the divergent thinkers, the divergent risk asset people, which is why, like, if you look at IPO performance, the Renaissance IPO index year to date is up 34%. And the S&P is, like, basically flat. Right. The, the supply, my point is the supply of new ideas is so small, but the, the capital out there is just like completely abundant. How else can you explain the fact that interest rates are so low? No one wants to essentially invest in new ideas. So I think there's this weird, bizarre thing where bankruptcies could be skyrocketing, fundamentals economically horrible, but the safest place may actually be in essentially private corporations. For new type corporations that are, they're at least growing users, right? They're gonna be the future. And I think what the Fed is trying to do is stop the recession from actually happening and resetting all the valuations. They're gonna just push it to a complete limit. Right. And, and you're also seeing like, just to go one step further, and the backbone of all this is pensions, right? If right. Look
1: at, yes. Now we're getting back to the pensions. Right. Yes.
3: So if you look at like the average pension funding, it's at about 70%. And, you know, just last week, Ben Meng from CalPERS came out, who's like a thought leader in the space. And he's like, I'm going to move more money into private equity um, because they only had a 4.7% return last year. They're realizing in the bond market, they're not getting that return. Right. Right. There's a couple things risks that I'm watching, which is commercial real estate. If that causes some sort of liquidity problem there, uh, where that's you know we'll keep watching that that problem flow through. But um, for now, I think what's happening is they're just going to get riskier and riskier and go out on the risk spectrum. You know, their their equity uh, portfolio went back up from you know the lows in March on is doing great. Now they're just going to go out to the private equity. And here's, here's a great stat I read the other day. State contributions account for 24% of pension, fundin- pension funding. Investment returns account for 67% of pension funding. And employee contributions account for 9%. Mm, wow. So you're going to have, in this COVID world, state tax receipts are going down. Um, then how do you squeeze out your employees to add more to their pensions? You can't add more, you know, from someone who's already kind of like, you know, in a ditch. So they're just going to go out on the risk spectrum for their investment returns. Because I don't think they're going to get it from the state. The Fed's not bailing them out. I think they're just going to go super risk on, maybe even use some leverage now. You know, there's, we're, we're getting into like kind of crazy world.
1: Well, you know, Calpers already said that they were going to use leverage, and when when you were talking about their bond portfolio and how its its their returns aren't happening, it made me think of you know what Rosenberg is saying. Instead of you know going out the risk spectrum. Uh, that you could take the barbell strategy. I mean, especially if you are a boomer, you know late uh, Gen Gen Xer, you would say, "Why don't I do uh, you know precious metals, gold, and increasingly now silver, silver's like up uh, has been up over eighty percent, ninety percent this uh, this year. And I could do that on the one side. And then on the other side, I do the long bond, you know, the ten-year, thirty-year type of of portfolio. And what Rosenberg is saying is, is that actually, if you look at the returns of the long bond over, say, the last nineteen months—that is, you know, since the beginning of two thousand and nineteen—it's actually outperformed the S and P
3: five hundred. I mean, that's great if you're a boomer. And you know, I'm looking for a little bit more juice to make up that gap for myself. You know, I love the gold miners, right? Their, Newmont, I think, came out recently. They said, you know, for every hundred dollars that gold goes up, they get four hundred million dollars in free cash flow. And since then, I think, you know, gold has gone up two hundred bucks, so eight hundred million in free cash flow with a dearth of supply. These things are growing like fast tech companies now, uh, and, and no one really has realized that. But so I like the gold portion for, for millennials, especially with the Fed and fiscal and infrastructure stuff going on. I I would be a little bit riskier of my own because, you know, bonds are yielding 0.6% tenure. So I'm like, uh, it doesn't really. <laughs> exactly. Like Schrodinger went up, you know, 100% on their IPO. Like I luckily I got involved in that. So like those are. Those are situations where I think as a millennial, just sitting in an S&P fund is, is like death by a thousand cuts. You're just going to get eaten up by the inflation everywhere else. Uh, right. And you're not getting ahead. I think you have to have that kind of barbell approach or mentality you know, going into the future. And the funniest thing is like the entire asset management industry, which is why I got the heck out of it, is, is about feet clipping. It's, it's playing not to lose and it's not about innovating it's about lowering your risk and it's it's indeterminate optimism it's arbitraging riskless things for 2 or 3% or whatever And, and, and
1: you know we were talking about this too because at the end of the day uh you know especially when the you, if you look at a chart and you see uh, how fangs doing uh and then you look at how the s&p's doing and then you look at how the rest of the market's doing without fang you know fangs up like thirty five percent this year and then the other uh, are, are you know up five percent and then uh, the other ones are down. And you know, if you're a active manager, it, just to make sure that you don't get fired and you you got to meet your benchmark, a lot of that is making you a closet indexer, you know you were talking about risk uh, risk reward. There, there's no reward to stick your neck out and not be a closet indexer if that's
3: happening. Yeah, I mean, that nails it all. So, you know, there's pockets in the market. You can find real capitalism and real, you know, ideas. But majority, and there's one other thing I wanted to talk about was one of the things that's kind of bearish um, that people have been tweeting. I think Lisa Abramowitz from Bloomberg tweeted this, but it was 1%, the top 1% market cap weights in the S&P, make up 22 percent of the index or something, which is a, a almost a record high. But to me, with rates this low and that type of concentration, we might be setting off for a big MA. You know, it, why why wouldn't you just issue debt at record low rates and go buy something, you know, that's growing really fast from a user perspective. You know, you're you're probably gonna do that at some point if you're a giant mega corporation and you're seeing your growth rates Go lower and lower and lower, right? That's when the the blow off top happens. And and I think,
1: yeah. So I mean, like, if you think about this, let's think about this from a bubble perspective. Let's call it, uh, you know, uh, somewhere between nineteen ninety eight and two thousand and five. That we're in, because when you when you're talking about the innovation, right. it's not like that period when people think about the Nasdaq bubble that that wasn't innovative. Think about the companies that are in Fang right now. You know, the uh, Google and uh, and Amazon they started at that particular time. you have other companies like eBay, PayPal. They've all they all began during that period of time, and so there was a lot of innovation. But there was a round trip right there. You know, you went up and then you went way down before you started to, to you know, go back up again. Where, where are we right now, if you were to make a comparison?
3: I don't know, 99? Uh, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of malinvestment, don't get me wrong. You know, but there's also like gem corporations where you're just like, that's gonna be the future and you know it. You know? And there's legacy corporations that, and, and a lot of the fundamental analysts look at it and they say, oh, well, these guys don't make money. You know, but they're running the Amazon model. You don't get, what's your incentive to go put money in the bank and and rip, you know, 0.025%. You know, you're reinvesting every dollar into the future. That's just what the Fed has forced you to do from, you know, an individual perspective or a corporation perspective, especially if you have, if you have growing users, you're forced to just constantly reinvest. And that's something. It's death by a thousand cuts for all the giant corporations out there that are trying to still squeeze out some your profit. Well,
1: talk to me about then uh, Tesla as Amazon in in that uh, in that way, because this is the way that I'm thinking about it. Okay, is that 20 years ago te- Amazon was what Tesla is today? That is, it's a company that had almost no profits, and people are like, "Where are the profits?" Amazon would say, "Look at the growth, and also look at the cash flow. All we need to do is just continue to churn it out, and eventually we'll become a mega corporation, and you'll be paid many times over." If you had invested in Amazon in 1998, you would have gotten your ass handed to you uh, because the market went down. But then it went way up, and you would be way ahead today. Uh, is the same thing possible for a a, a Tesla? You know, trading at um, you know what is it, 300 billion uh, market cap or something ridiculous like that?
3: Yeah, that's beyond my pay grade. I just stay away from that type of stuff. But, uh, you know, yeah, it could pull back, but at the same time, everyone's calling for a top in it. And there's so many weird market structure things we talked about last time, where now that they're such a big company, they're going to get put in all these ETFs and indices. They're going to get capital regardless. Um, so that's what it's like, I don't know what's going to happen there. What I do know is like, it's, it's probably a harder company to run because of the capital, you know, expenditures being like cars are way harder to, to make do than, you know, search engine. Right. Yes. Yeah. So from that perspective, uh, I I think it's, it's kind of egregious, but it could double from here. Who knows?
1: But that's not the kind of company that you're talking about in terms of where you're seeing the the leadership. It's yeah. really the small, the much more nimble companies. That's where you're saying uh, the growth is going to come even in a secular stagnating world.
3: Yeah. I mean, look at one of the things, one of my buddies from this company, Capital Markets Gateway, essentially aggregates IPO data out of- in in July there's 18 IPOs for 4.4 billion dollars literally every single one of them is now trading higher than where they IPO on open on total if you market or dollar weight them um they went up 66.55% after 14 days they went up 99% and then currently they're at around like 58% of performance wise so so it's uh these are the types of ideas where I'm like, risk or reward, you know, your downside is limited in investing in these like new companies. They're, the floats are really small, you know, and they're probably disrupting a lot of industries and, and there's, no, there's nobody else coming to market. You know, I think we're going to see a big, big IPO boom and an m a M&A boom before this is all over. And the one caveat is, here are the risks. Saudi dollar DPEG, Chinese Yuan DPEG, uh antitrust, and if credit spreads start really blowing up. That that's or, or real rates actually go positive again. I think all those things are what you should watch to basically pull back, reel in the lever of, of risk. But you know, gold, I think, is is going to be secularly growing regardless. But that barbell approach for millennials, I think new and innovative companies with with some gold is, is the way to go
1: great conversation uh you know it was it's always a pleasure uh, very interesting I, I i'm interested to see what the comments are on this one because uh you know um I, a lot of people tend to be a little bit more bearish uh, i think uh, in the rvr audi- audience I, i'd like to see what they have to say
3: yeah I, I, the one thing i always say is like i'm so bearish i'm bullish now and <laughs> that that's sort of where i'm at you know finite supply of new ideas and you got the Fed and and basically fiscal policy at your back. And I think that's gonna be a bipartisan thing, whether Trump wins or, or Biden wins. So we'll see if I'm right. If not, I will gladly come on here and tell you I was the market top guy.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Good good to talk to you, Tyler.
3: You too, Ed. Take care, man.